What's up guys? Welcome to the Dr. Joey Munoz Show. Today's episode is actually one that I recorded with my friend EC over on her podcast, The Consistency Project. We talked all about protein. I hope you guys enjoy it. And please check out her podcast as well, The Consistency Project. She has a ton of really incredible information when it comes to nutrition, training, fat loss, health, etc. Hope you guys enjoy. Joey, thanks so much for joining us on The Consistency Project. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. And we are specifically talking about protein today. Yeah, something uh, I talk about a lot, right? I think we all talk about protein a good amount for good reason, too. Yeah, I was going to say, is it the most popular macronutrient, right? (laughs) Probably in our circles, because you're also a fitness-related educator as well. So definitely one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on and and talk about this. But, you know, I'm coming from... uh, audience that's probably more functional fitness and CrossFit because that's my background. So I thought maybe Mm -hmm. we could just sort of start with you describing kind of the clients that you work with generally, um, kind of what are their goals? And if you have specific kind of general protein recommendations that you find giving your, giving most of your clients, and does that change depending on what their goals are, especially the fitness minded ones? Yeah, definitely. So I'd say my clientele, there are two different types of clients that I work with in particular. And one is people who are overweight or obese, haven't really focused on their nutrition or their health much or have, but unfortunately have done things that don't necessarily work or things that aren't sustainable, right? And with those type of clients, I really work on improving overall lifestyle habits, uh, finding a sustainable exercise routine for them, and just working on Again, as I mentioned, improving their overall lifestyle, right? With nutrition and with exercise. And the other like avatar that I work with, I guess, would be like the recreational athlete, which is where I consider myself, right? So people that have um, training experience already, but perhaps understand the benefit of working with a coach and want to take their performance and their physique to the quote unquote next level. Nothing professional, right? But I guess that's where you and I may fit into that category as well, right? Mm -hmm. So recreational athletes really wanting to optimize body composition through hypertrophy training specifically because that's kind of my forte when it comes to resistance training Mm. and overweight or obese individuals really trying to improve overall lifestyle habits. Mm. Yeah. So with those two audiences, then you, I'm guessing, do you have then different kind of set protein baselines that you start with, or maybe even with the overweight and obese, you don't even start with a set protein amount. I'd love to know kind of where you start with them in terms of protein and these habits versus your hypertrophy crowd. Yeah. So with the um, recreational athlete, it's a little bit easier, right? Because they've probably already tracked their protein intake. Like they know protein is important. And I really do like recommending at least 1.6 gram per kilo of protein uh, mm-hmm. per per kilo of body weight, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And I know consuming like one gram per pound is really popular. But if we look at like the scientific literature, it's really not necessary. In some niche populations, it may be a little bit helpful, like older adults or perhaps people who are in a severe deficit, right? But for most people, about 1.6 grams per kilo of body weight, which comes out to about 0.7 to 0.8 grams per pound of body weight is sufficient. Um, I have to interject right there. Everyone, make sure you just heard Joey, please. (laughs) My audience also sometimes is continually shocked, especially my CrossFit audience, that I would recommend something below one gram per pound. So thank you for reiterating that that might not be necessary even for the recreational athletes. There's nothing wrong with the one gram per pound. There's nothing wrong with the one gram per pound. It's just just not necessary, right? You'll get optimal muscle gain with 
0.8 grams or so, which is really not that yeah. far off from one gram anyway. Yeah. And the only downside I see of consuming maybe one gram or even slightly above, because some people do, is perhaps individuals who don't have really high energy expenditure and maybe are yeah. even trying to lose weight. And it's not that the high protein is inherently bad. It's that you're just like inherently eating less of other stuff, right? Mm. Less fruits, less vegetables, because those foods are not as high in protein. And when you're trying to follow a high protein diet, you inherently don't eat that many of those anyways. And so if you're eating a ton of protein, you're just by default going to eat less of those. And that's necessarily not ideal for health either. And we can even talk about perhaps like fruits and vegetables even being beneficial for promoting recovery when it comes to exercise, right? Uh, but now with the overweight or obese individuals, um, if they're gung-ho and they're cool with tracking everything, we usually have a conversation at first. I will give them a protein requirement. I'll look at where their protein is even like starting off before we start working together and try to bump it from there on a weekly basis. Honestly, most people who are eating lower than the RDA, and we'll talk about what the RDA is, which is about 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight, which is half of what I recommend most people to consume. Um, if most people are around there, then I might just bump that up to about, let's say they're going from 0.4 grams per pound, bump that up to 0.6, then a little bit more, then 0.7, then 0.8 to get to that 0.8, right? Because it's really hard to eat a ton of protein if you typically don't eat a ton of protein. It's a, it's hard in terms of making those dietary changes, right? People don't know what high-protein foods are. They are not focused on being like protein-centric, which is like when you have your meal, make sure you have sufficient protein on the plate, which are things that perhaps you and I take for granted as like it's just easy. Like that's what we do. But it is really difficult for a lot of people to get to that protein intake, right? For some people who haven't even focused on those things before, I'll usually give them like a list of like lean protein sources and just give them a serving recommendation, right? Like mm. have three handfuls of these types of protein sources on a daily basis, bump that up to four after a couple of weeks, and then talk about actually tracking gram amounts so that they don't have to eat only those foods, right? And I think that's really the difference in approach between the different types of population. It's not that there's actually a difference in protein requirements. Yeah. Is that the, the approach to get to the protein requirements a little bit different if you've never even focused on it before. I love it. And um, I had sent Joey a few questions that I was interested in before kicking this off, but I'm already going to go off script because I just want to hear his experience and his insight yeah, into his good. coaching process. Um, I, it's interesting to me with the with the different populations, What what guides you to kind of what your first step is going to be with them? Is it just listening about their diet and seeing what their diet is and deciding, okay, this is clearly what I should work on first? Do you have sort of a method that you like to follow with a lot of people? Kind of what helps decide for you what I'm going to pick first to to work with them on? Yeah. So my method is essentially having a conversation with them, seeing what they're already doing, seeing what they're missing and making sure that we have like we're picking all the low-hanging fruit essentially first, right? Yeah. So I won't – well, let me start with the people who haven't focused on anything before because I think it's pretty easy to answer this question for people who are like recreational athletes. It's like here are your recommendations, execute, and they execute pretty easily, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'll talk about, for example, like experiences that I've had with a couple of clients in particular who are very overweight, um, don't exercise at all, and perhaps have lost weight previously but with very unsustainable methods, mm. right? First off, I'm biased here, but I think education is huge. So usually in the intro call uh, that I have with my clients, it's a pretty extensive call. We talk about things that they've tried before, and I try to educate them on why those things can work, but they aren't necessarily sustainable, right? Because they're really restrictive. Like, for example, 
let's talk about some popular diets people may have used, like keto or whatever, whatever name diet. It's not that I'm inherently like against those things. It's just like they're very restrictive for no reason, right? So the first thing I do with my clients is get them to understand like this doesn't have to be restrictive and actually it shouldn't be restrictive. So step one is is all around mindset and education, like understanding this is going to be a long process. We're going to take small steps, but you're going to be taking small steps in the right direction versus like taking steps in a bunch of different directions, essentially, right? So that's I get it. One. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, and that's then step cool. two, I I send over my my clients a questionnaire. One is like a nutrition questionnaire. Uh, the nutrition questionnaire has some lifestyle habits, some lifestyle questions too, and then an exercise specific questionnaire. Because I do have all of my clients doing resistance training like off the bat. That's like one requirement to work with me. If you're going to work with me, we have to lift weights. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be – it's nothing heavy, right? Like some people are just at home with a 10-pound dumbbell totally. doing some goblet squats and stuff like that. But just you have to be open to resistance training because I do think – and again, I'm biased here. But I do think that resistance training is a critical component of long-term health, right? Aerobic exercise is important too, but I think most people already do some cardio. Uh, yeah. But most people like don't really emphasize on resistance training as much. So with those questionnaires, I really identify what are some of the areas that we could like make the smallest changes that will have the biggest impact, mm-hmm. right? And some of these things are quote unquote controversial. For example, if I have a client who's drinking a ton of like, even though it's juice, like with added sugar, we'll discuss perhaps having alternatively sweetened uh, beverages, right? Like mm. with artificial sweeteners or maybe natural sweeteners that are zero calories because it's an easy way to reduce caloric intake. And so essentially I just look at their overall like diet history, what they do on a daily basis, what their physical activity looks like and give them very small habits to change those. And then we, over time on a weekly basis, increase the magnitude of those habits, mm. right? So it might be, I'm starting up with a client right now. He has some issues with his glycemic regulation. And so we're just one, one of the things is the drinks. And another thing that we're focusing on is just going on small walks after each of the meals, right? Because that helps with postprandial glycemic regulation. So that's kind of the approach, right? It's hard to say like, these are the exact things I give my clients in this situation because it is on a per client situation. But the approach is one, change your mindset. This is a long-term thing. Small habits is what really helps. Two, let's see what you're doing and let's just implement small little habits around these things. And then typically I do have my clients track calories off the bat if they're okay with it and just calories and nothing else mm-hmm. because learning about energy balance is really important, right? So yeah. we, we work on learning how to track calories while also making these small behavior changes so that ideally by the time we're done, this person doesn't necessarily have to track calories anymore, but they've de- developed the lifestyle behaviors. And that's the same approach with the resistance training. If they've never done it before, I might give them just starting two days per week of a full body training routine seeing how they're responding. I ask all of my clients to send me video footage. So we really work on technique, um, specifically for hypertrophy, because most of my clients want to improve body composition and build muscle. Mm-hmm. And then from there, we just build on intensity and all that stuff throughout the coaching duration. Yeah. Awesome. I, I'm going to save my next follow-up question on that for later if we have time. Um, but let's get back to the protein for now. Yeah. Um, so my baseline recommendation for people is about 0.7 grams per pound. So we line up pretty well there. Um, and even people I have coming from the CrossFit space will often be surprised once they kind of start tracking 
that, oh gosh, I'm not eating as much protein as I thought, you know, oh, I thought I was doing all of this protein, but maybe it's not quite that high. So I'm sure you've had clients, maybe not as much in your hypertrophy group, but maybe kind of um, more of people looking to lose weight group that are struggling with this amount of protein. So I just sort of love to hear your kind of you know, tips or things that strategies that you give your clients during the day, besides this list of kind of, Hey, here are the protein ones. What are kind of your go-to recommendations to help people getting more protein in their diet? Yeah. So one, so in terms of like deciding whether a food is good in terms of like high in protein or not, one thing I really like to look at is like, this is not evidence-based, but my whole thing is like, if it has about one gram of protein per about, per about 10 calories, it's probably a pretty Mm -hmm. good source of protein, right? Like mozzarella cheese sticks, one of my favorite snacks, have seven grams of protein per 70 calories. It's like the low fat polio cheese sticks. And that's one thing I go for when it comes to like protein snacks, right? And now the other thing is really, and this is not so much of a tip, but in terms of like behavior change, really making sure your your, your meals are centered around protein. Hmm. Like rather than putting your meal together, and then figuring out how much protein it has. It's like, put how much protein you need on your plate and right. build your meal around it. And that's what I tell totally. all of my clients. And I mean, that's usually enough to really shift the behavior, right? Because what, what people like tend to struggle with is like, oh my God, I went through my day and I didn't eat enough protein. It's like, yeah, because you didn't focus on eating enough protein at each meal. Let's say somebody has to consume 150 grams of protein. Um, let's actually make it a, a number that's divisible by four so it's easier Let's say they're going to consume 120 grams of protein in a day and they're going to have four meals. I literally tell them, have breakfast, lunch, and dinner and make sure you have 30 grams on your plate before anything else. Mm -hmm. And that's a super Mm -hmm. simple way, right? Like for breakfast, you can have a couple of eggs, some Greek yogurt. That's my go-to. I usually have eggs, Greek yogurt, and a piece of fruit. And then for your lunch and dinner, if you have about four to six ounces of any cooked uh, protein source, that's going to be about 30 grams. And then you can just supplement with a serving or a serving and a half of, of a protein supplement at the end of the day. And you have your, your total protein intake there, right? It's really that simple. I think what people struggle with is like snacking because there aren't that many very high protein snacks. Yeah. And if there, there are people have heard things like they're quote unquote bad for you, like beef jerky and stuff like that. And sure, you can make an argument that some of the um, things in those foods aren't the best for our health. But those things are like way low in the list of importance in terms of like variables that will influence your health positively or negatively, right? Um, That's that's pretty much the approach that that I take with most of my clients with protein. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, So you had mentioned kind of the RDA is at this around point four grams per pound and your kind of recommendation even for your resistance hypertrophy individuals is almost double that, if not double that. So what's the disparity about how come, you know, both you and I are recommending, but I'd like to hear your point of view, uh, recommending so much higher than the RDA. Yeah. So the RDAs are not set for optimal health. They're just set to prevent deficiencies. Right. Mm. And sure. You may not be protein deficient if you're consuming the RDA in terms of protein intake, but if we're talking about optimizing health and again, I even hate using the word optimizing health because it depends on how you define health, right? But if we're talking about having a healthy body composition, and we'll talk about muscle mass and why muscle mass is important, but also from a hunger and satiety regulation standpoint, protein is really beneficial, right? Hunger and satiety, what does that mean? Well, the different macronutrients have different effects on how full you feel on a per calorie basis. In theory, 100 calories of protein 
should help you feel fuller than 100 calories of carbohydrates or fats, right? Mm -hmm. Now, again, you don't want to eat exclusively protein because other foods are very healthful as well. But you want to be eating a sufficient amount of protein to help with hunger and satiety regulation because oftentimes people struggle with hunger and satiety when they're trying to lose weight. Why? Mm -hmm. Because they don't make any dietary changes. They just cut the amount of food that they eat in half, right? And that's not a good approach at all. I actually just recorded a podcast episode on this on like oh, cool. strategies to help mitigate hunger and satiety. But, you know, if you're eating sufficient protein in theory, that should definitely help you keep you, that should definitely help keep you full throughout the day, which should reduce cravings and help you manage your overall caloric intake. So that's from a hunger and satiety standpoint. From a muscle building standpoint, we really do see an incremental benefit in terms of like response to resistance training with higher protein intake, right? And that 0.8 grams per pound of body weight really seems to be like the upper end of where you're gonna get like the biggest bang for your buck. Mm -hmm. Again, could we argue that more might be slightly better? Sure, but like how much better, right? Yeah. So the, the benefit for body composition is if you're trying to lose weight, and let's say we're just talking about vanity-based reasons here, just the way you look, mm -hmm. like protein's gonna be helpful for building muscle, it's gonna help you have a lean and aesthetic looking physique. Right now, from a health perspective, why is that even important? Well, muscles associated with longevity, better glycemic regulation, reduced risk of obesity, reduced risk of cardiovascular disease, better bone density, right? Because you're lifting, bones become denser, and all of those things reduce your risk of all-cause mortality. Now, even aside from dying, if you have more muscle, you're probably more physically capable, right? You're more mobile. You're not out of breath going up, going up some stairs, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't hurt to play with your kids or your grandkids. So, your quality of life is significantly improved. And I can, mm. you can argue that you don't need 0.8 grams per pound to have a good quality of life, but if you care about all of these things, right, body composition and health-related benefits, um, that is a really good number to aim for. Again. Yeah. It's not 0.8 is magical. It's like you want to consume for sure more than 0.4. And if you can get up to 0.8, you're going to be at a, in a pretty good place to optimize these different variables that we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I love the point on the hunger and satiety because I think, you know, our modern food environment changes some of our challenges, right? And so yeah. using protein as one of the levers is huge there. So do you have, I mean, maybe it's 0.4, but in your mind, do you have sort of a minimum that's be a little higher than 0.4 that you'd like to see people at in terms of protein level? I haven't necessarily like, like said it, yeah. put much thought about a minimum. Yeah. I'd say most people don't eat below the RDA, right? Like most mm -hmm. people don't yeah. eat below the RDA just naturally, mm -hmm. just because here in the U S like we have good accessibility to food and most foods contain some protein. And most people are eating things like chicken and eggs and dairy already and getting the RDA is pretty simple, right? Some, yeah. like most people fall between the, the RDA and that point mm -hmm. eight. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's really the, be the best I could say. I, I would yep. love everybody to be at the, at the point eight and ideally nobody being below the RDA. Right. Yep. But, um, yeah. yeah, I haven't really, really given much yeah. thought to like a minimum don't be below here type of thing. Yeah. Um, okay. One of the next things that I wanted to ask you about, cause again, I, with my functional fitness athletes, they're often surprised at, that I kind of have this 0.7, um, number for protein. And they're again, thinking that one gram per pound is necessary and better. 
And so I think some of the confusion is just how we talk about high and low, t- low protein diets, um, just in the media space, as well as maybe the research space. So can you maybe define for us how you use the words high and low protein? Like what would be a high protein diet to you? What would be a low protein diet to you? Or maybe some of the disparity you see kind of in interpreting the research relative to these qualitative terms of high and low? Yeah, so I would define high protein as definitely higher than the recommendation that we're giving. The recommendation that we're giving mm. or higher would be a high protein okay. diet, right? Yeah. I know people go way beyond that and it's excessive. And there is some research on like really high protein, but there's not mm-hmm. much, right? Like yeah. realistically, it is really hard to consume more than one gram per pound of body weight. Mm-hmm. Like protein is my favorite thing to eat. <laughs> and I weigh 220 pounds and getting 220 grams of of protein is a struggle on a daily basis, yeah. right? I don't Absolutely. eat that much. Like usually I'm around 200 grams, but it's, it's hard. Um, so, you know, I'm, I would say from just like defining you're following a high protein diet, if you're eating around that 0.8, which is 1.6 grams per kilo, you're consuming a pretty high protein diet, right? Mm. And then a low protein diet, again, from a fitness standpoint would be around the RDA, right? Or even maybe slightly even higher than the RDA, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6 grams per pound of body weight. Mm-hmm. It's hard though because I never really uh, discuss these things in the context of like a low protein diet, right? Mm-hmm. I'm usually always thinking about high protein diet. We should consume this much protein. So these are interesting questions for sure. Um, in the research literature, we're really looking at low protein being the RDA or below, mm-hmm. right? And then seeing the adverse effects of that. But again, just general population, most people don't eat below the RDA unless for whatever reason, personal reasons, religious, whatever, people are vegetarian or vegan and don't really know much about nutrition at all and don't focus on protein, then I would say those people probably fall naturally perhaps below the RDA, like people who are on like a raw vegan diet, for example, which is such a a small, minute uh, percentage of the population, right, who are eating like exclusively fruits, protein is going to be an issue. Yeah. But for most people, it's not. So so it's hard to discuss the context of like low protein diet because most people are eating what I would call adequate protein. And we're talking yeah. about adequate protein here to not be deficient and not health, have health-related effects associated with not consuming sufficient protein. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm glad you said that because, again, I think sometimes when I talk about high protein, it's assumed that it has to be higher than this 0.7, 0.8 level. When in reality, that's already high. <laughs> that's already yeah, kind of yeah, 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 high yeah. relative to the the research, right? I mean, a lot of the research yes, is looking yes. at the RDA. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yes. Okay, Good. okay. So I understand where you're coming from with that question a little bit more now. Yeah, in the mm. research context, like high protein is considered more than the RDA, mm. right? Mm-hmm. It might be like 1.2 grams per kilo, which is about 0.6 grams per pound. And right. that's considered a high protein diet, which I wouldn't necessarily consider high protein. I understand why it's defined that way because it's like, oh, this is how much you need to prevent deficiencies, anything Beyond this is a high-protein diet. It's not really a high-protein diet, but that's how it's defined in the research, right? So there there are some discrepancies there. And then what I was just, uh, saying about earlier in terms of like there's not a whole ton of research in terms of like really high-protein and really high-protein being what we recommend or even a little bit higher. Like all the research with that amount of protein is really in like the fitness space, right? Totally. Hypertrophy, body composition, et cetera. And there's not so much in terms of general health or longevity-based effects because the majority of the population just doesn't eat that much protein. So it's hard to have a large enough sample size to really know um, the effects. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for that because that's just it. Sometimes I think people will hear high and just depending on what they're eating, 
they have an assumption about what they think that number is when again, this 0.7, yeah, 0.8 yeah. should be considered high. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, well, let's dispel some of these myths then around all of, eating all of this high protein diet. Um, I think maybe the oldest one around is in terms of high protein can hurt your kidneys, right? So is that true? Yeah. And why should, why are we eating so much protein if that's a problem? Yeah. So, so let's start by saying that there's definitely data for people who have chronic kidney issues. A low protein diet does seem to be beneficial for uh, mitigating symptoms. Okay. Now for people who have healthy kidneys, that's if, if a doctor has never told you that your kidneys are messed up, you probably right. have healthy kidneys. Right. Um, you don't really have to worry about protein. Where does this myth come from? Well, it mm -hmm. comes from the fact that a byproduct of protein metabolism is creatinine and urea, right? Mm -hmm. And so these are also markers that are indicative of kidney function. They're, mm -hmm. they're surrogate measures essentially, right? It's like to test the function of your kidneys, they're not going to like take a biopsy of your kidneys and really like test what your kidneys are doing. So we have to look at things in our blood that might tell us what our kidneys are doing. And now we have to understand that these blood biomarkers, the levels set for them in terms of like average or low or high are based off of the general population, right? Mm -hmm. And so the general population with healthy kidneys, their creatinine and their blood urea uh, levels are within a certain range. And that range is used to determine what's healthy, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in particular populations, maybe niche populations like recreational athletes, for example, who eat more protein, well, protein can influence these variables as well, right? So if you eat a higher protein diet, you might have slightly higher creatinine levels. You might have slightly higher blood urea nitrogen, right? BUN is the marker. And so it does not mean that your kidneys are not functioning properly. These are also things that are slightly elevated with a higher protein diet. And just because they're slightly elevated does not mean you have kidney issues. I'll give you a perfect example here. Mm. We use fasting blood glucose as a marker for our glycemic regulation, right? Mm -hmm. Now, fasting blood glucose is something that's influenced by carbohydrate intake, but also by exercise. A lot of people don't know this, right? If you exercise on a fasted, uh, like in a, in a fasted state, essentially, your blood glucose actually slightly goes up. Why? Because your body's going to break down glycogen, it's going to break down uh, fat, essentially, right? Uh, triglycerides, and it's going to increase the amount of glucose in your blood so you can use it for exercise. And the reason why I'm bringing up this story is because when I was taking a biochemistry course in undergrad, my biochemistry professor went to the doctor to, take, to get his blood sugar tested. And this guy was in really good shape. And he rode his bike to his doctor's appointment. And so his blood sugar was slightly elevated. And the doctor comes back and he's like, you're pre-diabetic. And he's like, no, I'm not. I rode my bike here. And that's why my <laughs> blood sugar is slightly elevated because I exercised before coming here. And doctor's like, nope, these are the numbers. You're pre-diabetic. And my biochem teacher was really, really pissed off. But <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> it's actually, you know, we, we have these markers that can indicate something exactly, because in particular yeah. conditions, those markers are influenced. But there's other variables that influence those markers. So those markers don't tell the whole story. Yeah. Um, and there's, there, there is a good amount of research showing that high-protein diets do not adversely affect um, kidney function. Yeah. Right? If we look at other, other variables like GFR, which is glomerular right. filtration rate and stuff like that, they're not really influenced by protein intake. And there really is no evidence that kidneys are adversely affected by protein. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think there has been, correct me if I'm wrong, but definitely research looking at way higher than 0.8 grams per pound yeah. on kidney function. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, now that that is self-reported though, so I'm okay. always a little skeptical about that because I'm sure the protein was high, but I think the one study you're referencing is like by Antonio et al. and it's like 3.3 grams per kilo or Pretty something high, like yeah. that. Which oh, is that was like, self-reported. Yeah, it's really hard to get that much protein, right? Yeah. Maybe yeah. maybe some people were, but I don't. I'd assume some of it was overreported for sure. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to take a look at that. Um, I think you actually hinted at this earlier. And as far as I understand from some of your research background, you also have experience specifically with osteoporosis. So this will be great to get your take on yeah. um, the next myth, which is tends to be about kind of high protein is bad for bone health. So can you yeah. set us straight on that one? Yeah. So again, the bad effects are simply just from mechanistic studies, right? And mm. for the audience, people who are listening, what does mechanistic mean? Okay. There's different types of research. There's clinical research where it's like you're giving humans something and you're seeing if something happens, right? So you're working directly with people. Mechanistic research is like if you're working with uh, animals or particular cells and you're seeing what happens, right? Like if I take, um, I don't know, some cells from your liver, from a rat liver and like do some sort of treatment and see what happens, right? That's mechanistic research. And mechanistic research is good because it tells us what may be happening, but it doesn't tell us the whole picture because our physiology is complex, right? And it's not just like one thing causes one thing. It's really like one thing influences a million different things and these things can influence each other too. So that's why the clinical aspect is really important to have. Now, mechanistically, there's some evidence that protein... Um, may induce a little bit of acidosis because you increase uh, acid secretion from your stomach essentially, right? Mm. And one of the, so our stomachs have acid. The acid is important for digesting our food. Protein uh, seems to secrete a little bit more acid than other foods perhaps. And then when that food goes from our stomach into our intestines, we then neutralize that acid with different buffers like bicarbonate, for example, right? And there's some evidence that perhaps some of that buffering capacity comes from calcium resorption from the bone, right? So mm. bones release a little bit of calcium because calcium is involved in the bicarbonate production. And so there's some evidence that if you eat more protein, you might be releasing a little bit more calcium from your bones, which may be a little bit bad for overall bone health. That's kind of the, the gist of it, right? And there's some evidence that um, protein intake might slightly increase parathyroid hormone production as well. And PTH is also involved in bone resorption. Re bone resorption just means bone breakdown, okay? Um, but the thing is, there isn't clear evidence because, because when we do eat more protein, we do excrete more uh, urinary calcium. Mm -hmm. Now, there isn't strong evidence that that calcium is coming specifically from bones. The thing is that protein also increases calcium absorption, mm -hmm. right? So there are things that make certain nutrients easier to absorb in your intestines and some things that make certain nutrients more difficult to absorb in your intestines. And protein slightly increases the absorption of calcium and that's likely why you're also releasing a little bit more calcium in your urine. Now, if we talk about clinical evidence, um, again, there's really not much outcome data showing that protein is bad for your bones. And if we're talking about people who resistance train and protein is helping you build more muscle, and you're, being, you're becoming stronger and you're lifting heavier weights, lifting heavier weights itself is really beneficial for your bones, right? Because the same way that like putting a bar on your back and squatting it makes the muscles of your legs stronger and bigger because you have to overcome that resistance essentially, your bones have to, have to get stronger and bigger the exact same way that your muscles do, right? So your, your bones respond very similar to resistance training 
the same way that your muscle does. So in theory, I'd, I'd argue that a high protein diet alongside resistance training is actually one of the best things you can do for your bones, not yeah. the opposite. Great. Awesome. Um, one of the other topics that is definitely kind of a theme in my community is kind of the longevity crowd, the fasting crowd a little bit. And there's a little bit of discussion, shall we say, around low protein diets for longevity. And I think it's related a little bit to another mechanistic um, line of thought related yeah. to kind of mTOR and IGF-1. Can you explain a little bit about what that is, the background on that, and then what kind of the evidence you think related to longevity is relevant for protein intake? Sure, sure. So let's talk from like a, a cancer prevention standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I'm not an expert on cancer, right? And if actually, if you're really interested in this topic, my good friend is a cancer biologist and mm -hmm. he talks about oh, this great. stuff all the time. Uh, okay. Dr. Joe Zendel, you might follow him or not, oh, okay. I don't know, but he's great. He's done a couple of these podcasts discussing like the role of nutrition in, in cancer prevention. Okay. But essentially the whole idea is like mTOR is this molecule, IGF is this molecule that promotes growth, right? Mm -hmm. They're anabolic, they promote growth and they can promote growth of anything, right? They can, mTOR in particular promotes growth of muscle because it stimulates muscle protein synthesis, but it can promote growth of anything in any particular tissue, right? And like mTOR and IGF-1 are some of the main signaling pathways um, associated in tumor growth as well, right? From my understanding. Again, I'm not a cancer expert here. But when it comes to like protein intake, we're really like stimulating. The, the thing is we have to talk about tissue-specific activation of these molecules, right? Like activating mTOR in your liver may be a bad thing, but activating mTOR in your protein, eh, not in your protein, in your muscle is mm -hmm. obviously a good thing because you're stimulating muscle growth, right? So it, we have to talk about it with like a layer more of nuance, essentially. And I will be completely honest here. I'm not well versed in the data of like the effects of dietary protein on mTOR activity of like different organs, Right. But from my understanding, <laughs> <Neither am I. laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But from my understanding, again, if we look at actual outcome data, um, protein itself isn't necessarily harmful. Now, now the danger comes and, and I, I'm going to talk about this like with an asterisk, essentially, because I think there's a lot of confounding variables here is in terms of like protein sourcing. Right. And higher protein diets that are heavy on animal based proteins do seem to have an increased risk of, of some particular cancers. And there's a lot of variables here. Uh, one is the saturated fat content. Like eating a ton of saturated fat is, is undoubtedly not good for us. Mm -hmm. Now, I eat a ton of, a ton, I wouldn't say a ton, but I eat a, a pretty like saturated fat heavy diet. And it's just because I enjoy it. I understand there are risks associated with it. I really do think that the benefits of my overall lifestyle minimize the risk potentially because when we talk about risks of like individual nutrients it really is minimal i'd say compared to like overall lifestyle behaviors right yeah. but like you know if you're eating a ton of animal protein you're likely getting a good amount of saturated fat saturated fat is associated with adverse health outcomes cardiovascular disease some particular cancers as well so that's one aspect of it two is and this is just from a like common sense standpoint, people who perhaps eat less red meat or less processed food and eat more vegetables, more plant-based protein, perhaps follow a vegan-based diet. These are people that are likely inherently really focused on their health, mm -hmm. right? And perhaps the general population, uh, people who eat a ton of animal-based proteins likely are not. So it's hard to 
to take into account all other confounding variables in terms of lifestyle, right? Like, are there differences yeah. in physical activity? Are there differences in smoking status? Are there differences in, in uh, like, uh, economic status? Because that's important as well, right? Overall lifestyle, it's, it's some of these studies account for some of these behaviors, but it's practically impossible to account for all of these behaviors. And we know that pretty much everything affects our health in one way or another, right? Yeah. So, so those are some, some differences there as well. And then inherently, if you eat a ton of animal protein, again, by default, you eat less plants, right? Mm -hmm. And plants can actually have a very protective effect on developing cancer. So again, that's not an inherent danger of eating too much animal-based protein. It is a byproduct of eating too much animal-based protein. Like you're essentially eating less plants, but you can simply like overcome that by making sure that you're eating a ton of fruits and veggies, right? Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the study in particular off the top of my head, but they actually did a, a meta-analysis looking at different quartiles of protein intake. Oh, yeah. It's like no fruit and vegetable intake. And yes, the more animal-based protein you eat, the worse the health outcomes. But then they did that did that as well with like a secondary variable being quartiles of, of fruit and vegetable consumption, right? And those that were eating a ton of protein, but also a ton of fruit and vegetables didn't have any adverse health outcomes compared to the group that was eating a lower protein intake. Right. So yeah. it goes to show that it's not inherently protein. It's all of these other variables that are associated with a high protein animal based diet that may be adversely mm -hmm. affecting your health. Yeah, I think that's probably I mean, it's maybe the only study that I know of that does a really good job of kind of trying to separate out the whole diet from just like yeah. is this a standard American, you know, animal based diet or is this kind of the paleo interpretation of the red meat yeah, diet yeah, or yeah, animal based yeah, diet? Yeah. Yeah. And really yeah. what I told people was like you know, okay, so based off everything I'm saying, like the foods that definitely seem to promote longevity and health the most are plant-based foods. If we're talking about health just from a longevity perspective, okay? Mm -hmm. So like, sure, you can argue like if you ate no meat and you just ate a ton of fruits and veggies, would you live longer? Maybe you can, I think there, there there's a lot logical argument to be made there. But then you have to think about like different aspects of your health. What does it really mean to be healthy? Does it just mean to live as long as possible? To me, it doesn't, right? right? Like right. I would trade living to 100 to just live to like 90 or 90. I'm saying that maybe because I'm in my 20s now. So maybe this might change <laughs> when I'm closer to my 90s, right? But I would want to be like as physically capable as I, as I possibly am. I'd want to be as strong as I could be. I don't want to be at risk of like falling and breaking a bone. And like those things can be prevented if you ate a little bit more protein and did some resistance training as well. Right. Yeah. So it really depends on how you define health. If you want to live as long as absolutely possible and that's the only variable you care about. Sure. I guess you can make the argument that eating less protein and eating more plants might be helpful for that outcome. Mm. But that's a very like, like just like narrow view of what health is. Right. 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 Yeah. So you kind of tackled one of the other questions I want to ask. So I'm going to flip it um, to wrap up here because given your kind of hypertrophy clients that you have, what about kind of that plant-based diet then for hypertrophy, right? Is that any less effective than somebody who wants to include animal proteins for that goal specifically? Instead yeah, of just no, focusing it's not, on health. It's not, yeah. it's not less effective. It's just a little more difficult, mm. right? There's actually some pretty good new research showing that if you consume adequate total protein, even if it's coming from plants, you're, you're going to stimulate muscle growth optimally, right? It's just hard to get a lot of protein from plant-based foods. And again, one of the variables that really influences our health is nutritional diversity, which means eating a ton of, a ton of foods, not being like exclusive and only eating a few, which most like, most like health promoting diets 
and for those of you guys that are just listening, I did air quotations because they're not health-promoting diets. They're very exclusive. They remove stuff mm-hmm. from your diet, right? And like from a health perspective, you want to have an inclusive diet where you have a wide array of, of whole and processed foods. That being said, though, um, when it comes to plant-based diets, if you're trying to get a ton of protein from plant-based foods, you're probably going to be relying pretty heavily on just a couple of sources of protein, right? Mm. A bunch of soy-based stuff like tofu, for example, uh, perhaps legumes like chickpeas and stuff like that, which are great for your overall health. But it's the fact that you're going to be getting like, if you're trying to get 0.8 or like, God forbid, a gram per pound of body weight from like just vegan sources, and you care about eating whole foods, like minimally processed foods, which I think most people should, I think that focusing on minimally processed foods is more beneficial for your health than cutting out animal-based foods. Nonetheless, mm. if you're doing that, it's really hard to get that amount of protein, right? So it's not mm. that plant-based diets are bad for muscle growth. I think that's a myth that we well know is not true. It's just that you have to be way more diligent with your diet to get optimal protein intake and optimal like, like nutrient intake as well, right? Yeah. To optimize hypertrophy. Now, there are plenty of plant-based athletes who look great, who perform really well. I'm sure in the CrossFit community, there's a ton perhaps. But um, in my opinion, it's just not necessary, right? Listen, I would never ever knock anybody for like ethical reasons or religious reasons or personal reasons. Like at the end of the day, we get to make whatever choices we want to make. But the one reason I definitely don't stand behind is for health-based reasons. Like it's just not healthier to cut out animal-based products. There's definitely some benefits of consuming meat. There's definitely benefits of consuming dairy. There's definitely benefits of consuming eggs. Anything in excess, we can argue, will have detrimental effects on different aspects of your health. But including those foods in your diet is going to be beneficial. Again, if you follow a plant-based diet for one of the other reasons, that's fine. And you can definitely still grow a ton of muscle and be super jacked (laughs) (laughs) if you don't eat any meat. (laughs) Well, awesome. I really appreciate your insight on this and especially just giving us the context. I mean, obviously I wanted to talk about protein, but um, just helping people understand all the other factors that come into play surrounding it and that we can't just only focus on protein for our outcome. Is there anything that I missed that you kind of wanted to add about maybe protein myths or, or something else related to this conversation? That I didn't, that I didn't already ask protein, you. I think we covered everything. We covered really. it. <laughs> we yeah. nailed it. Well, I guess, I guess that's one little thing I would like to talk about yeah. because people tend to hyper-focus on different variables associated with protein. Like, mm. where's my protein coming from? How much protein am I consuming? Then it comes down to protein timing, right? Mm. Um, and I think it's important to note that like by far, by far the most important variable is total protein intake. Right. I'd say second to that, it's maybe protein source. But as we were just talking about, if you consume total adequate protein, the type of protein that you eat doesn't matter that much as long as you're getting complete protein sources. Right. And again, complete protein sources are those that contain all nine essential amino acids. People tend to think if they're on a plant based diet, they need to like purposefully mix and match stuff. And that's not necessarily true because if you're consuming, again, various sources of of plant based proteins, you're going to be getting all of those amino acids. So that's not something you have to hyper-focus on. One thing people do tend to hyper-focus on is protein timing, right? Mm -hmm. And again, I'd say for the vast majority of people, not important. If you're consuming well-balanced meals, you're optimizing protein timing, right? Now, the crowd that this might, uh, this topic might be like interesting to is people that like purposely want to fast, right? I only eat one or two meals a day. Like, can I still grow muscle? Yes, you can still grow muscle. Um... I would argue that maybe it's not as optimal as evenly spacing it out, 
but you can still grow muscle even if you have just one or two meals per day getting all of your protein in. It might be hard, but it's still possible. Why is spacing out your protein a little bit better? Well, if we look at the research, really 30 to 40 grams for most people in one meal will maximize the anabolic response after consuming protein. That is like maximizing the muscle growth response essentially, right? Mm -hmm. So ideally, if you consume 150 grams of protein, you want to consume that in relatively even boluses three or four times throughout the day. Why? Because after a meal, when you stimulate that muscle protein synthesis response, it tends to come back to baseline four to six hours after consuming. And that four to six hours is range because it depends on what else you eat, how quick the digestion is, et cetera. Right? So in general, so in essence, like if you want to really optimize your ability to grow muscle, Maybe maybe making sure you eat protein every four to six hours versus just like once or twice a day is going to be optimal. But again, like the benefits might be one or two percent, which for like a top level CrossFit athlete or a bodybuilder might be might be really really worth it. But for somebody mm-hmm. else, it might not be worth the headache, right? Yeah. So that's one topic I really like to think about because people are always like, "What about protein timing?" It's like it doesn't yeah. really matter that much. Thank you. Oh my gosh. I love that you've said so many things that are synergistic, what I say. So it's so wonderful to hear your expertise on that as well. And um, we're going to put all of your links. You have a new podcast out at the Dr. Joey Munoz show, I believe, right? Did I get the title right? Yes. And um, we'll put out your Instagram. You always have fabulous evidence-based content. I'm always amazed at the volume of content you put out. So um, hopefully our <laughs> listeners will follow those links and follow you and check all that stuff out. So thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, EC. And, and truly, I appreciate you tremendously, too. You're one of the few people that are putting out really, uh, really fantastic content on social media, too. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so very much for tuning into this episode of The Consistency Project. Thank you to Dr. Joe Munoz. Again, all of the links to his various things, including his new podcast, is in the show notes. So do check it out. Check him out. If you are not yet subscribed to the show, to this show, this particular show, we highly recommend, we ask you, we implore that you do uh, so you do not miss another episode. We thank you in advance for your ratings and your reviews and for your sharing of the show to your friends, to your colleagues, to your many followers on Instagram. EC and I will be back next week for a new episode of The Consistency Project.